Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you uh, for this word. As we uh, sang, Lord, it's about you. We, we lift you up high. We, we behold you in your glory. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for the gift that you gave us in Christ. We thank you that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient uh, for us and uh, absorbing the wrath that was due us for our sin. And so, Father, I pray for each one here today that um, if they don't know you as Savior, that you would so work in their life, Lord, that they would come to understand the gospel, that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he uh, gave himself as an offering um, for our sin. And that all it takes to receive salvation is belief. And so, Father, I pray that you would increase all of our faith This day, we pray, Lord, as we uh, turn our attention and worship to the studying of your word, uh, we ask that you would give us open minds and humble spirits to uh, receive your word, that we would be encouraged to grow in our relationship with you. Father, we ask that your spirit would lead us uh, through the studying of your word, and it's in Christ's good name we pray, amen. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would guide us now as we study it. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So today we um, are introduced to a word that may be familiar to you or maybe not so familiar to you. It's the word deacon. Um, I wasn't really raised in the church. Like, I wasn't raised in the church, period. I could just leave it at that. Um, And so by my adult years, through times in athletic uh, groups um, and then into the military, I would begin to encounter sort of religious guys. And, and in the military and sport, there's always nicknames that, that go out. And I, and I never, with a name like Gunner, I never struggled with having a nickname. My dad gave me a nickname. Um, I get, is that your real name? So I didn't get made fun of with nicknames, mostly. Um, but around the religious guys, there was always, if there was a religious guy, he suddenly became the friar or uh, preacher or deacon. And these were just sort of like derogatory statements that we identified with the people but I couldn't tell you what a deacon was or what it meant or anything like that. And uh, I never held that title. I, I did have a nickname once of Friar. And then my longest nickname for religious was in Bahrain. Um, in Bahrain, we had about two months of downtime and there was a bowling alley. And so my platoon got really big into bowling and we were very competitive about it. And I took on the nickname Holy Roller uh, because at that time I was a, I was a, I was a Christian and I was in Bible college, and I was preparing for the ministry. So 
uh, my beloved name became Holy Roller, and it was, uh, I, you know, I want to try to get a comeback with that name, um, uh, but then I probably have to start bowling again. And so my purpose today is to introduce us to this word deacon. Uh, we, we kind of get right into it, and there seems to be an understanding between Paul and Timothy that Timothy would understand what this word uh, means, its, its origins, and how it applied in the church. Uh, first thing we need to identify is that the word dirk, deacon, dirkin, deacon is a transliteration of the Greek. It's, it's, a, it's a word that is a Greek word uh, that we've just taken that Greek word and made it an English word. And so the Greek word actually uh, has two meanings. If it's a verb, it means serving or to serve. If it's a noun, it means servant. And so, so really this is how you would identify like a, a servant or if you were doing something, it was uh, to, to serve in some capacity. Uh, it eventually took on um, a sort of a title form or an office form that we see a deacon being used, that it, that it sort of identifies, um, <clears throat> without getting too far ahead, it, it simply identifies a, a leader amongst servants. Um, the, the heart of being a servant r- really embodies all of Christianity. Um, every follower of Christ should um, long or practice or become a servant, one who desires to serve others, to give of themselves. Um, it, the origin is really Jesus. If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 10, this is just one case where Jesus uses the word or the idea servant. Uh, he gave this instruction over and over again. I think through the whole of his ministry, he was trying to teach the disciples that his economy was very different than the world's economy. Uh, the world's economy says that you don't want to be a servant. You actually want to have servants. And the more you have, the better. Uh, but Jesus says, no, you, you want to serve. Um, uh, in verse 41, I'm going to pick up. We read, hearing this then, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. So right away, we have a problem here. This is a pretty funny story. Um, There's 10 that are mentioned, or really 12 when you take James and John, but the 10 are really mad at James and John, these two brothers. And if we were to back up to verse 35, I'm not going to read it, but these two brothers were sitting there uh, in front of Jesus, and they look at Jesus and say, okay, well, we see that you've identified the 12 of us to be your kind of guys. And we want to know... When we enter into the kingdom, to your kingdom, where you're going to be reigning and ruling, my brother James wants to be on the left side, and I want to be on the right side. We want the top two uh, key positions. We, we want to be your chief guys. So what do we got to do? And as he, they're asking these questions, the other 10 guys are like just smokes coming out of their ears. And I mean, they're indignant. They're furious with these two. Who do these guys think they are? And so in verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus kind of gathers all his little guys. He says, man, you guys are so missing the mark again. And Jesus said to them, you you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. So he says, when you look at the world, when you look at other kingdoms, those who are on top have a strong fist. They lord it over those minions below them, and they 
uh, take charge over everything and there's, there's nothing. I, I get that that's how it works in this world's economy. In verse 43, he says, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your deacon. That's the word deacon in the Greek. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served or deacon, whatever the verb of deacon would be, but to serve or be a deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here we have the creator of the heavens and the earth taking on the form of man in Christ, coming as Philippians 2 tells us, living, this pers- living a perfect life, the, 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 the man God who spoke creation into existence, he's saying, I didn't come to be served. I came to give of my life, to give my life as a ransom, uh, to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world, to offer my life in service. As we go through today, it's, it's imperative that we always keep the horse before the cart. Um, works, deeds, actions are secondary to salvation. Uh, Jesus gave his life as a ransom. He came, he died uh, for you. There's nothing for you to do to get right with God other than to believe in what he did for you. From there, the fruit of the gift that we've received is that we then produce fruit in our lives like serving. And so I always want to be really careful that we don't listen to today's characteristics that are listed and to think that you've got to do all of this stuff to become the quote-unquote good Christian in order to earn favor with God. Um, Moving from Mark, uh, chronologically we're going to go to Acts. What's happened now to kind of fill us up to, or to get us up to the date in uh, biblical history. By the time we come to Acts chapter 6, Jesus has made his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, He was buried for three days. Uh, He arose on the third day, he then walked the earth for 40 days. He, he, uh, during this time, I think he had some significant work with his disciples. He began to prepare him for when the church would take shape. And eventually on the 40th day, he, he rose, or no, he ascended into heaven, not rising from the grave. He ascended into heaven. The disciples go back to Jerusalem. They're waiting for 10 days till Pentecost happens. And at Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes, uh, baptizes the believers that were there waiting, and uh, sort of long story short, this church explodes, goes from you know a hundred something people to thousands upon thousands. Um, <clears throat> the apostles were the functioning elders, the pastors of the early church. By chapter six, the church had so grown that a situation arose, and this is what we'll look at. And the reason that we're reading these seven verses is because this is, this, this is what most believe is, is where the, um, the office of, of deacon sort of um, originated. So in verse 1 we read, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, uh, complaining in a church can be healthy, there's nothing wrong with complaints, 
you know, you, there's, there's a situation. This is a legitimate complaint that we're about to learn about was brought to the disciples or the apostles. Um, and so a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. So these two groups to explain uh, the Hellenistic Jews uh, throughout history in uh, 786 BC, then, or 722 BC, excuse me, and then 586 BC, uh, Israel and those two mo- movements were basically taken into captivity um, and brought into exile. And during, uh, so if that's 522 BC, is 500 years basically before Christ, um, the, the, the church was scattered. Um, they, they lived all amongst the world. The Jewish people that were brought into different regions, they adopted the culture and the language that they now lived in. We see this in the book of Daniel. We see this uh, just throughout. And so many of these Jews, they became known as Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews that during the diaspora, is what it's called, where they were dispersed amongst the world, began speaking Greek. They lost um, their ability to speak Hebrew. Um, the Hebrew, the Old Testament translation for many years that, that Jesus used was the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because that's what most Jews spoke. And so you have these Hellenistic Jews. They would have been large in number. Uh, then you have, uh, what's the word that's used? It's actually just Hebrews. The native is added there. So we see native Hebrews. These are the Jewish people who... During this era, they were able to remain in Jerusalem and Israel. They were able to maintain their language and culture and everything. There was a huge distinction between these two groups. That The Hellenistic Jews were uh, looked down upon by the, the native Jews. They uh, were sort of viewed as compromisers, that they started speaking Greek and, and giving up the traditions of Judaism. And so we're introduced to these two groups a complaint came against the native Hebrews because the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Okay, so here we have the issue of widows. All through the Bible, widows is, 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 an, is a topic that is near and dear to God's heart. Widows and orphans. Um, there was no social security during that time. The only way that a widow would survive, it would be by her family. And so if her spouse died, it would be up to the children, siblings, whoever family-wise was there to provide and to care for her. We'll see in Timothy chapter 5 when we get there that Timothy said, okay, when there's a widow, you need to sort of, uh, there's sort of a litmus test uh, uh, to figure out what you're going to do. If there's family that can care for her, the family is number one responsible to care for the widow. However, if there's a widow that has no family, basically she'll be destitute because there's, there's no social services. If there's no family, there's nobody to care for her, she'll eventually be homeless and on the street and, and will be in a, in a dire situation. So those widows, the, the church is called upon to minister to, to care for, to help meet their provision. And so here in Acts chapter 6, this is already happening. Very early, we see that the church is caring for the widows. But the complaint, how far did I make it here? Um, <clears throat> the, the complaint was brought to the apostles that the, that the native Jews, they were getting a better ration of food and the Hellenistic Jews, where there was a larger number of them and they were sort of second-class citizens or definitely looked down upon, that they were not getting the same ration of food. 
And so a group of people, goes, they go to the apostles and they say, we have a problem. And the apostles, we'll see, are, are overwhelmed, clearly. They, they, they have uh, their task, their role that God has given them to do. And there's so much, only so much time in a day that any individual can do. And they recognize, while we want to do this, we simply can't. And so we need help. He, they say it is not desirable for us. Or so the 12, verse 2, let's just read the whole verse. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they said, we, we have to focus on prayer. We have to focus on our uh, ministry of, of the word. And that, that, I, that word that says we can't serve tables, that word serve is deacon. So from this is where the whole idea of deacon sort of bubbles up to the surface. They select seven guys. They all have Greek names. It's suspected that they chose all uh, guys with good character who were Hellenistic Jews to sort of oversee this. There's great wisdom in that because now they, they're the, it's Hellenistic Jews dispersing the food. So if you have a complaint that the Hellenistic Jews aren't getting it, well, it's Hellenistic deacons who are serving. And so uh, it's just not the case. And we see that they were happy. They went on. Um, as the story of the early church develops, the, the idea of a deacon as an office became sort of common. In Philippians 1.1, I believe, as you can turn back to Timothy, but in Philippians 1.1, by the time Paul writes Philippians, he addresses the, the, the church, um, he, he addresses the elders and the deacons and the congregation. So, he, so we see that this idea or, of uh, the deacon within the church um, sort of being cultivated. And so as we look at this, with that background... Because in today's text, it's really just Paul saying, if you want to select some deacons, this is, this is what you're looking for. And Timothy knew exactly what he was talking about. So the first word we see is deacon, likewise must be. So the likewise connects us to the previous section. Uh, therefores are important. I feel like we all know that when you see a therefore, you ask, what's a therefore, therefore? Normally it's connected to something previously. When we see likewise, this is sort of a list, uh, uh, a continuation from the previous thought. Like uh, when you are reading and you say, oh, there's a few things that you need to consider. First, there's this. Then the next paragraph will say, second, there's this. Third, there's this. A likewise is like that. It's a, it's a numbering system of sorts uh, linking to the previous thought. And so deacons likewise, we're now talking about church leadership, uh, what we're looking for in the character of an individual uh, so deacons are sort of connected. There's a relationship between deacons and elders. And if you go through the list and you compare and contrast between elders and deacons, the list is virtually identical. I mean, I, it's, it's virtually identical. And the reason for that is because those that would make uh, good elders and deacons are mature Christians. And so the list that he suggests are characteristics, fruit of a, of a follower of Christ's life, that every follower of Christ, whether you're in official capacity or not, 
that we all should see these characteristics maturing and developing in our lives. Um, the only distinction between the, the elder and the deacon is the elder is required to have an aptitude for teaching, that he has or the, the component to, to teach. Uh, the deacon does not have that requirement placed on him or her, which we'll get to. So deacons likewise must be men of integrity, or men of dignity, excuse me, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. There's negatives and positives in this list. I'm going to deal with the negatives first. Um, So the three negative things uh, that Timothy is being instructed by Paul, that when you are examining an individual, a man in this case, uh, for the office of deacon or to serve in in the role of a deacon, which is a leader servant, avoid people with these three characteristics. The first we see is not double-tongued. This carries sort of a twofold um, requirement on the individual. It's, it's number one that the individual uh, can receive sensitive information and it can stay within them. Those who are elders, deacons, leaders functioning in the capacity of the church to, to help with certain needs, you're going to become aware of information in people's lives that you're ministering to and it's privileged information, and, and the individual that the church selects to, to go and serve in these capacities, they need to be able to keep their mouth shut and not go gossiping about the individual or sharing information that's nobody else's business. Uh, there's also the nature of duplicity, that you're one way with the individual, and then you're a totally different way uh, behind their back. I don't think we need much explanation. Double-tongued, They're, they shouldn't be double-tongued. Um, not addicted to wine. This, this, isn't, this isn't saying that a deacon can't have a glass of wine or an elder can't have a glass of wine. This is addiction to wine, uh, going in excess uh, with wine. Uh, Ephesians 5.18, which Joel referenced last week, it, it shows the issue is, is control. Um, we're to be controlled by the Spirit, um, and if drunkenness leads to a, uh, you're no longer in control. And there's really just like a practical element to this. It's like you don't select a guy who you know that every day at 3 o'clock he's down at Fat Ivers getting weight. I don't want to call it Fat Ivers, but like, <laughs> it's like our local pot. Like, like, hey, oh, we got a lady that needs some help. She's got a broken pipe. Oh, let's call Deacon somebody. I don't want to say, use somebody's name on accident. Oh, we, hey, it's after three o'clock. He's already, you know, three sheets to the wind down there. We can't have him. Hey, hey, Mrs. Hopkins, how are you doing? We'll fix this. It's the person that's not addicted to wine. That they're in control, that you can count on them. Because the need always surfaces at the most inconvenient time. Like, at midnight, when something goes wrong and the, the person calls and needs help, you need a guy that you can say, I know he's not going to be drunk. He's going to be reliable to go serve. Not fond of sordid gain. This deals with dishonest gain. It has nothing to do about wealth. It has to do with 
How did you acquire your wealth? Are you a dishonest person? Are you doing things that compromise your integrity, which ultimately bring shame on Christ or the church? That your businesses, practices must have integrity and in how you... Um, it, it, it's, it's more about the character of the individual than it is about the actual business practice. <clears throat> now we come to the, the positives that we see... Uh, dignity or dignified, which we're going to see with the ladies in verse 11. So it's the same word. This word can be translated in a number of different ways. It could be translated um, in, in various translations. It could be worthy of respect. It could be reverent. It can be serious, good character, sincere, a grave manner. It sounds really serious. Um, or dignified. And this is a person that there's a maturity that they can... Uh, um, I don't think this means that you can't like have a good time and laugh and, and have I was laugh and joke and uh, coke and joke is what we used to say in the military. You know, you just have a good time. Like, I, I love a sense of humor. A sense of humor is a great thing. I love laughing. I love having fun. I love practical jokes. I love doing silly stuff. But the idea is 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 being able to understand the context in the situation that you're not going to go to a, a rough situation, even though you, like you might be somewhere having a fun at a birthday party for a kid and all jovial you get a call that somebody just had a terrible thing happen and you need to be able to go there and, and display maturity, uh, a, a disposition to, to handle the gravity of whatever situation you're dealing with. This is simple maturity and knowing appropriateness and, and being able to, um, what I, I think of Romans when it says, uh, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and grieve with those who are grieving. Uh, this, this can be, simultaneous. I'll never forget the, the moment. It was probably like eight years, nine years ago now at the old Palomar Hospital. I forget the floor levels, but one of them was like the heart attack floor. I'm sure there was a more official name for it. <clears throat> and the floor right underneath it was the baby floor. And we had a guy in the church who had a massive heart attack and somebody who had a child. And so I go up to floor number, the heart attack floor, and I'm visiting with this guy who's like literally grave and I'm there weeping with his wife and praying for him and then I say well I'll, I'll be back later I hop in the elevator I go down one floor I'm like a baby and I'm like this is how do we how are we so complex as humans that we have a creator that made us have these like we have the capacity to ex extreme joy I mean there's nothing more better a baby anything is amazing like a human, puppy, kitten. Like, I, I don't think I've seen a baby anything that wasn't like just, like that just doesn't. But then to be able to see that and then to be with a guy and be super serious. That dignity. Holding up the mystery of faith. <clears throat> this one I think is important. I think this is about being passionate about God. This is having a maturity in the faith. We start to think, well, well, when the origin of this, the Acts 6, all these guys were doing was, it was like being in the soup lines, dishing out food, serving tables. Why, why, do, you need, why do you need biblical maturity and, and, and a, a handle on the maturity of faith with a clear conscience? You're not just serving tables, you're serving people. And I can tell you that anytime I've had the opportunity to go serve whatever the need was, I can be doing whatever is being done 
But the individual that's being done for is right there, and there's often questions about other things, and to be able to encourage them in the Lord and to answer whatever questions that they're having. Maybe they're having, you know, they've got a flat tire, and it's like they're just like, it's like the thing that just is breaking the candle. Like, I can't handle a broken tire. Like, I've had this a broken tire. See, I'm not really mechanical. Uh, <laughs> flat tire. Uh, <clears throat> But like they could have a whole string of things and you show up and you're just there to fix the tire, but it's like, no, you're there to minister to them and you just happen to be fixing the tire. And Paul recognized that, that, that these are opportunities that we have to display the gospel and to, to care and love for people. Uh, we have tested. This isn't like a testing for uh, ruling people out. Uh, you know, there's testing, I think, of finals or I don't know, teachers would probably disagree with that statement, so I probably offended somebody. Um, but like a testing where you're trying to get rid of uh, the bad things. But then there's testing that is demonstrating success. <clears throat> I, I, what I've been thinking about this week is I think about summertime, which is like we never really leave it that much. But when we start swimming again, you know, and the pool waters start rising and you can start taking the kids swimming. And I've, uh, I have one more kid to go to teach him how to swim. And in the teaching kids how to swim, it's like a terrifying experience. Like I, I, because I, I, I think I've been trained for like you, whatever can go wrong will go wrong, and so I, I, it's hard for me to train kids to swim, but I really care about our kids knowing how to swim. And so this last summer, Gideon kind of like he crossed the mark where he's a swimmer, but the kid has no fear, so he'd go up on the high thing, he'd do this cannonball, and he'd sink down to the floor, and it's like, do I rescue him? Is he drowning? Do I get him? And then eventually he'd like float back up and like make it to the edge. And I'm like, whew. And so we do this a bunch of times. And it's like, my kid can swim now. I feel good. Like he really has it. And then the big test, what happens inevitably is grandma will make her way up. It's like, grandma, we got to show you Gideon can swim. And the big test happens where grandma's on the pool deck. Gideon does his cannonball and he swims to the edge. Everybody's all excited. It, it, it's, a, it's a testing that demonstrates the aptitude that's already there. It's not a, a testing to, 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 sh- to remove the person. And this is what's being said here. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons. You're just recognizing what they're already doing, this test. They're, it's showing that they have aptitude. They're doing, it's not about the title. It's that this is a mature Christian that's already serving in this way. They've been tested. They've demonstrated their faithfulness and their service of the Lord. It's a... Uh, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. And this has nothing to do with being perfect. This, none of us are perfect. And I know Joel kind of mentioned hypocrisy last week, and I want to probably expand on it a little bit more because I, I really have a problem when people say, oh, Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites. They say, well, what, what do you mean? Well, they say all this stuff, and they don't do all that stuff. Oh, well, I don't see that as hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you say you're doing all this stuff and you're holier than thou, you're the holy roller, and you have your whole life in order, but really your whole life's fallen apart, and eventually your whole life that's under apart is suddenly exposed, but you've been making this big facade, and there are plenty in the Christian world who are hypocrites. But most Christians I know are not hypocrites. Most Christians I know are just sinners saved by grace. Say, I'm not perfect. I'm not sinless. I want to make that mark. I feel like I should be there. But like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. I'm struggling in this life because my, stress, my flesh is so strong. That's not hypocrisy. That's just being 
not perfect. And so beyond reproach means to be free of any charge of wrongdoing, that there's nothing against them. This is because as we serve and live for Jesus, his name is literally on the line with our title, Christians. So this is the idea of we don't want to shame him or his church. And so you select individuals who have been tried and true and are of good reputation, have good integrity. <clears throat> and now we come to the verse that I, I really camped on this week, probably because the last time I spoke, I dealt with the women in chapter 2. And, and so I've been thinking a lot about women. Don't take that the wrong way. <clears throat> in the Bible... And so we come to this verse, and it depends on the translation that you have. But we, we read in the New American Standard, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. <clears throat> you may have a translation. They're pretty much split in how they handle this. You might have a translation that reads something along the lines of, um, their wives must be. And if you have that translation, the translators have, have moved from providing like a literal word-for-word -word translation, and they've moved into the realm of uh, interpretation, and they've provided a bit of an interpretation for you, um, which always happens. You, you can only go from the Greek to Greek. Anything that you move from the Greek to any other language, you have to interpret. I mean, these guys are scholars. And, and this is one, this verse I found, like I have two guys that I respect the most in uh, sort of the, the ministry, the preaching of the word, and they disagree with one another. I'm like, you guys can't disagree with each other. I love you both. Like, how does this? And so I recognize I'm entering this. I, I'm going to share with what I've kind of like this week. So this word women the problem that we, we deal with, well, there's three options. Let me just start with the three options. When we read women, there's three options. Number one is that it's dealing with just all women in the church. <clears throat> Number two, we're dealing with the wives of deacons. The third option is that we're dealing with deacons who are women. And so the first one, all women, we can just throw that one away. Like that one, that one's easy to get rid of because if that was the case, we, it, it would be with, it would be with uh, chapter two. We, like two weeks ago, I had the really awesome message where I dealt with women. You guys remember? Like I, that was really fun. And, and <clears throat> like, it, like we dealt with women, generally speaking. So then dealing between deacons, wives, and women deacons, there's some problems that we need to sort of acknowledge. Um. Not all our problems. Uh, some just to show you guys under the surface, kind of the word likewise. I, I've already mentioned this. This is a series of thought. We already had likewise in verse eight, dealing with deacons who are men. Now this this likewise is connecting to that from that thought. Like at number two, likewise, women, or your translation might say wives. Now the issue there is with the word woman or wife. In the Greek, there's one word, and it either means woman or, or wife, and you have to take the context, or you have to have a definite article or a pronoun connecting it together. 
In this case, there's neither. There's no definite article. There's no pronoun sort of linking it to anything. It is, it is women with a likewise kind of tying it back to the, the men. Um, and so we have to deal with that. And so those that would say this is dealing with wives of deacons, which if you have that translation, what they're doing is they're, they're I, I say this with all due respect, because one of the guys I respect tremendously, and he could destroy me uh, if we were to have a little debate here. Um, the, that they have a preconceived notion about roles within the church. And I think that they come in with their philosophy and they apply their church's background and, and, and they apply it there and, and instead of letting the, um, the scriptures speak, which we're all prone to do. And they would say, well, verse 12 is right there. And right there, we see deacons must be the husbands of only one wife. That's the same word. Now, the problem is, is with that word, we have the definite article and we have the connection. We have everything connected. Like, everything is connected to deacons. Verse 12 is very clear. We're talking about the wife of a deacon. And so if this woman must likewise be dignified was dealing with the deacon's wives, it would make much more sense if, I think Paul would have written it with verse 12 as being verse 11 and verse 11 being verse 12 because if we did that, we would read, deacons must be the husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Their wives must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. That's how it would read. It doesn't read that way. It starts with the women, likewise. Um, Uh. I got to get my, my, my brain needs to catch up with my words that have come out of my mouth. <laughs> Computer little spinny ball is there. Um, <clears throat> so they would say that it's connected. I'm like, well, what about the order? And I argued with one guy, like it just happened, I have a little friendly pastor's group. And I said, well, why, why, why would you say that? He's like, well, I just don't think that carries much punch that it's out of order. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's fair. So then the other one that's really common that they would say is that there's a Greek word, deacon, in the feminine. And if Paul wanted to use this dealing with women deacons, he would have used it in the feminine. But the problem is that, that this is all uh, dealing in the masculine. And if he wanted to be clear, he would have just thrown in the feminine. Now, if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll come to see that the Greek word for deacon in the feminine, did not exist during the time of Paul's writing. Uh, To show support for this, we would go to Romans chapter 16. You don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter 16, Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Sister Phoebe, that's that's a lady, like if it's not clear enough, our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon, servant, is the word he uses, of the church. Now, can any of you guess what the declension of that, that word is? It's the masculine. Because the, the feminine didn't exist. And so Paul, when he writes about Phoebe, he, uses, he identifies her as a deacon in the masculine, dealing with the role that she has within the church. That's a compelling thing for me. Let me see if I missed anything here. Um, well, I think I've spent enough time on this. 
so I humbly acknowledging that there are many scholars who would disagree with me. There are also many scholars that would agree with me. I think when we come to verse 11 that we're dealing with women who are deacons within the body of Christ. And I, I have no problem with that. If you removed women from the church, we would be in trouble. Like, we would be in super trouble. Um, and so when he identifies women who are deacons, he says they must be dignified. Same word as verse 8. They must not be malicious gossips. Same thing as not be double-tongued. Same idea. They must be temperate. Uh, the idea of being balanced, even-keeled, steadied. They must be faithful in all things. This is the idea of fidelity, being true to the trust that's been given you to function in this capacity. And then he continues with deacons. Must be the husbands of only one wife. This is literally, as it is with the elders, a one-woman man. There would be no need for him to write this about a woman deacon. There was no such thing as a woman having multiple husbands. I don't know that any woman would want that. I don't know why guys would want multiple wives. But he's dealing with the culture of the day. He says deacons must be the, a one-woman man, good managers of their children, which I think is a much better word. I, I, you know, Some of the translations use rule, which I think in our day and age just conveys the wrong idea. Being a manager of your home is way different than being a ruler of your home. And the biblical context is that you be a good manager. Um, I love the Olympics. Well, I like sports. And I like high-level level competition. There's just like, Anna's always making fun of me. I'll be there like seeing something and tears will be coming. She's like, are you crying? I'm like, this is like, they've been training since this. This is excellence. And to see them do whatever moves me. And so there was this interview yesterday or the day before, whenever the Olympics started, and and it was a mother and a daughter and a lady interviewer who I'll leave her name out. But the mother is the mom, the teacher, and the coach. And the interviewer basically, they're like friends and they get along and it works for them. They're clearly like very successful. And the interviewer looks at the, the mom and the daughter and says, I got a 22-year-old daughter that uh, doesn't want to be in the same zip code as me. How do you guys make it work? And the look of awkwardness between the mom and the daughter of like, well, we just love each other and she's very respectful of me. Like it was super. And I think when I heard it, looking at this, like the lady's comment about her daughter not wanting to be, spoke, I think, more about her parenting than necessarily the situation of this. And I, and, I, and I think that this is why it's so important. He doesn't talk about their business practices. He says, well, I don't want to look at a businessman or businesswoman and see how well they're doing in the the financial world, that's not a test of a person's character because they could be super successful in the business world, but their house could be falling apart. He's like, you look at their home, and if their home is together and honors Christ, then they'll be able to handle the church in the same loving way. And verse 13 is this little verse of encouragement. It says, for those who have served well as deacons, they obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And I think this is the blessing of being a servant leader. Um, when I first got saved, I was at a church and they gave away free t-shirts. Who doesn't love free t-shirts? And so I like wore this free t-shirt everywhere. And on the back, what it said, <clears throat> it said, every member a minister, which minister is another word for deacon, servant. And 
And I loved it because the idea is that we as Christians, we follow our Lord who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So if you've received the gift of his ransom, the spirit of your heart should be serving. And this cuts against culture because our culture says you want to be the top dog with with minions under you, not the one on the bottom, but Christ says the one who is greatest is the one who is least among you. And Paul says that those who serve and give of themselves, they please the Father in heaven, and there's great blessing. I want to end with just a couple thoughts here. Um, On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, um, he'd been pouring into the, the apostles for a long time. And we know that night, according to John chapter 13, it starts with like the feet washing. And I really think there's so much more there. Um, Normally there would have been a servant there to do the washing. But it seems that they cleared out the room where they met so that they could have privacy because Jesus, uh, it was a holiday. Uh, Jesus had some final words for them. And in John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus basically looks at them and he says, you know, a new commandment I give to you is that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, the previous commandment was to love one another as you love yourself. And so Jesus sort of upped the bar and said, no, you love as I have loved you. And it'd be very easy in context. It was the night in which he was betrayed to run, to take this to like, oh yeah, he gave himself on the cross, he gave all, which I think that it's fair to do that. But in the immediate context of him saying this, Jesus was looking around, his dinner was about to start, and nobody got up to like offer to like do the menial menial task of, washing the people's feet. He's like, I've been here three years with you guys. Nobody's, like, not one of you is going to, like, and then he gets up and he, like, disrobes and he puts his towel on and he goes and he washes all of their feet and Peter's like, no, no, not you. You shouldn't. There's no way. He's like, Peter, don't you get it yet? I came to be an example. I want you guys to serve as I have served you. This is love. And so I encourage all of us that we would, number one, grow in your relationship with Christ. If you haven't trusted in Christ, trust in him. Give your heart to him. Give your mind to him. Study, grow in the word. Get to know him more. And as you get to know him more and more, then begin to give of yourself in service to him and to others. Um, I do want to, in ending, I want to give thanks to all who serve here. Um, I'm not really big into titles. I think that's probably my background in the military is I learned early on that people who are hungry um, to acquire a title for themselves, there's normally a warning there. And so I probably should grow into this and be more like, you know, get name tags for our deacons and stuff. And like, but the reality is it's about the the role of their service, and we have many, both men and women, who are deacons in this church that I call upon who meet needs that I can't meet, and I am just so grateful um, for those who serve. And I really, um, all of us should be serving, but it needs to flow out of our relationship with Christ. So with that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you um, for calling us
to salvation. We thank you for the great gift that you have given to us in Christ. Father, we pray for each individual here. Um, Pray for those that may not be saved, that you would help them to understand the gospel, that they would respond to you. Uh, For those of us who have responded to your invitation, Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, increase the desire of our hearts, that we would long for more of you, that we would uh, desire um, to fan the flame of our relationship with you. Um, As we grow closer to you, Lord, we ask that you would... um, You would help us to see areas that we can serve. We pray that you would give us your eyes, um, that we would be like Christ, that we would give of ourselves and that we would serve one another and that through our lives, uh, you would be honored and glorified and that your reputation uh, through our church, this group of people gathered here, that you would be glorified and honored and that your name would be great amongst us and our surrounding community. Uh, We are grateful, Lord, um, for your grace and your provision in our lives. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.